Welcome to Mind Love, episode 173. Today's episode is all about discovering your dharma. Living your dharma is not necessarily this like quit your job, do something new. It's learning more and more about yourself and especially the things that feel random, that feel like they don't fit in, that you're the most ashamed about. It's integrating those aspects. Just know, especially right now, I think moving out of 2020, this is the year that like all of us are really diving in and asking these big questions. So let that excitement, let that curiosity fuel you. Don't step away from the feeling of the bigness of the question and dive into it. And you will be amazed by how far you can come with just knowing some basic things about who you are. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. Hello, love. If you haven't subscribed yet, don't forget to hit that button. Subscribing, sharing, and five-star reviews are a really great way to give back if you find this show helpful. Plus, they help the show grow and climb the charts, which helps me get even better guests. Today, I want to read a review from Louise Likes Stuff. She says, this is the first and only podcast I've ever listened to every single episode. It's just part of my life now, and I can't express how grateful I am. My life is better because of what I've learned. I signed up for the premium membership for extra episodes and to remove ads, but mostly just because I wanted to show support for the show worth every penny. Thank you so, so much, Louise. I'm sending you so much love right now. Today, we're talking about Dharma. As I was researching for this episode, I was kind of surprised how many meanings there are for this word. According to Wikipedia, Dharma means cosmic law and order. The most common definition I found was the universal nature of something. A professor of Buddhist studies named Reginald Ray said that it's a particularly fascinating term because it includes several levels of experience, from our first moment that we're on the path to discovering our Dharma, all the way to the achievement of full realization. Well, realization is also a term that we hear a lot in spirituality. So what does it even mean? Well, most spiritual teachers hold the belief that we have forgotten who we truly are. We truly are divine beings living a human experience. And the spiritual path is the process of remembering. So self-realization is understanding or realizing the depth of your true power, which really is unlimited power. So back to Dharma. The whole goal of Buddhists is to uncover this true nature of their selves, not just a glimpse, but to fully exist in it, which means identifying with their true nature and to forget any other self that they may have imagined or made up so far in their lives. So forgetting the ego or the manufactured personality that you've developed over the years and fully identify with the divine that you are. They say that when we reach this realization, we start to see that what we are has no beginning and no end. We are just universal love. Anything else is a construct of the mind. It sounds peaceful, right? But is it feasible? I mean, not really for most of us, unless we choose to dive into monk life for a few decades, I suppose. But like Dr. Reggie Ray said, the term dharma includes multiple levels of experience, whether we're just starting to seek the path of dharma or we've reached full realization. So what can finding this dharma do for you right now? Well, it's your true nature or your soul's purpose. 
When we think of purpose, I think we often think about our careers. And while that definitely can be true, our dharma shows up in all areas of our lives. So for example, part of my dharma is learning and teaching. I didn't acquire this nature from my job. It's always been a part of me. I loved school and overachieving when I was young. I was also usually the friend who went down the rabbit hole of different topics and then couldn't stop sharing what I learned with my friends. I really started to see this about myself when I started to ask people that knew me what they saw in me. And multiple people said I was good at taking information from tons of sources and explaining it in a way that people could understand. Well, when I started to steer my career in the direction of my true nature, that's when I really started to find alignment. And things just flow when you're truly aligned. This also doesn't mean I need to be a teacher. There are a lot of professions that use a skill of teaching. It might lead me to podcasting or being in a leadership role. It might lead me to be a stay-at-home mom where I can teach my kids. It might lead me to marketing, which is really teaching people why this new thing would help them in some way. So whether or not you already feel purposeful in what you're doing with your life, getting clarity on your dharma can still be really helpful. I know for me, my career has been a journey, but it's so easy to start identifying with aspects of our career, like I am a marketer or I am a product designer. When really our superpower might lie in a skill within that and being clear on that could expand our options or help narrow down a decision when we're expanding our business or switching careers. It might even help you show up more confidently in your relationships or just in your life. So today we're going to give you a roadmap to discovering your dharma. Our guest is a friend of mine who has been on the show before, Sahara Rose. Some of you might know her because she's basically a badass with three best-selling books and another on the way, a new book called Discover Your Dharma. So three key things we will learn are the four types of dharma and the five stages of dharma discovery, the nine dharma archetypes and how to find out which one we are, and how to overcome your fear around living your dharma. But before we get started, I want to invite you to wake up to the morning mind love. This is not just another boring newsletter. Instead, every weekday morning, you get a little inspiration just to set the tone for the day and give you something positive to focus on. Think of it like a love letter from your higher self. Plus, you get two free gifts when you sign up, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of self-reflecting journaling prompts to help you grow. And it's all completely free. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up. And if you're out and about, just text the word MORNING to 33777. That's MORNING to 33777. And now let's welcome Sahara Rose back to the show. Ah, thank you so much for having me, Melissa, and congratulations to you. So you have written another book. I'm just always blown away by the fact that you just bust out books (laughs) quickly. I know last interview, we talked about how your first book was just completely unexpected and you just like hit it and got it done. So how has it been writing this last book and what inspired this topic? Yeah. I mean, this book was a two year long journey. So it was very, very different than that first book, Idiot's Guide to Ayurveda. Um, What inspired it was the question I kept getting from people, you know, from going through my health issues, discovering Ayurveda, the world's oldest health system, using it to heal my body, feeling inspired to write a book about it, going through so many blocks to finally write that book and Deepak Chopra writing the forward. 
and just my life changing so drastically, I kept getting like, how did you do it? Like, how are you able to find your thing? How are you able to overcome the fears, the, the familial conditioning, the limiting beliefs, all of the things. So the question I kept getting was the same question I was asking myself of, do I have a purpose? Am I worthy of sharing this? You know, has someone done it before? Are they going to laugh at me? And I realized just how similar all of our stories are of the things that are holding us back from living our purpose. And I kept going back to myself when I was in those years of all of my doubts, all of me feeling, feeling like I'm confused, me feeling like I'm not a doctor or whatever the story was and how those actually really became the things that made me me. And this concept of Dharma really started to come up for me more and more Dharma being your soul's purpose. So that's what, you know, originally I was going to write this book, not a book about finding your Dharma. It was just going to be a Vedic guide to living your best life. And then as I was writing it, I was like, well, what's the point of living your best life? Like, what does that even mean? And I realized that you can't even truly be happy when you're not questioning what your purpose is, that happiness is a byproduct of living your purpose and everything else really, you know, comes secondary to you questioning the truth of who it is that you are. So decided to just tackle life's biggest question and write a book <laughs> on finding your purpose. Your, and more than just your job, your career, anything like your dharma. Yeah. So what is the difference between dharma and your career? I know that so many people are like, I need to find my purpose. And they're mostly just career oriented about it. But how is that different? Mm. So your dharma is your soul's purpose. It is the big reason why you are here. It is why you do what you do. It's your how. It's your magic sauce. It's your soul's frequency. It's the unique essence in which only you can carry. So your dharma is more like your mission statement. I'm here to bring beauty to this world, or I'm here to connect women to their bodies, or I'm here to connect ancient and modern spirituality, etc. And then underneath that mission statement are your services. So those are your jobs, roles, careers, projects, et cetera, that you can do, but they're falling under the umbrella of our Dharma. So a lot of people, they're like, oh, I must not have a purpose because I keep changing my mind. You know, I was a graphic designer and now I'm doing makeup art. And then I was an interior designer and then I was in fashion. I keep changing my mind and I just don't have a purpose. I don't get those people who have them. But really, in those examples, the Dharma was the same, to bring beauty to the world. But the manifestations of doing so can change throughout your life. So your Dharma is the red thread that connects everything that you do, and it's the unique essence in which you bring to it. I love that. I have coached people in that same way where they're like, well, I've only ever done this one career forever. And it I'm like, yeah, but what skills do you have in there? Now what skills do you have just by managing your household? Now what skills do you have in your friendship circles? Like what do they look at you for? And trying to find those threads. And we start to realize that just because maybe you've been in finance your whole life, your dharma might not have anything to do with that. Your purpose might not have anything to do with that. And so when we're able to shift our perspective a little bit, we realize that we are actually constantly developing skills combined with what was already unique about us, which actually brings me to the question, how much of Dharma is what's already innate and how much is it something that we build up through life if we weren't yet trying? Mm, yeah, that's a beautiful question. So you were born knowing your purpose. 
you were born with your frequency, your essence, who you are, you know, your human design and your astrology and all of these different factors, your archetypes, et cetera. But that doesn't mean that you're born embodying it. It doesn't mean you're born actually like doing it. So you may have been born for a purpose that for bringing a unique energy to the world, but now you got to go through the curriculum and that curriculum are the obstacles that you get to overcome to now prepare you to embody your Dharma. So just because we all have a Dharma does not mean we're all going to embody it in this lifetime. Majority of people do not. It's, are you going to take those obstacles that you've overcome as your unique soul's curriculum to prepare you, to make you stronger, to make you smarter, to make you more resilient. And if you can take these things as your lessons that are now allowing you to step into your Dharma, then you can see why the very aspects you were born with and the unique preparations you've gone through have now created this perfect embodiment of who it is that you're meant to be. Do you love story-driven podcasts? I do. And there's a brand new one that I think you're going to love. It's called You Probably Think the Story's About You. The story just grabs you from the start. It all starts with Brittany, who thinks she's found her soulmate, only to find out things aren't as they seem. So she goes on a mission to find out the truth. And as she digs deeper, she realizes the guy's a master of deception. But here's the thing. As Brittany unravels his lies, she ends up on this journey of self-discovery. She starts to see how her own complicated past with addiction, sisterhood, and deep family bonds all have shaped her. And that's when it hits you. This story isn't really about him at all. It's about Brittany finding herself and learning who she really is. Trust me, you'll be hooked from episode one, wondering where Brittany's path will lead her next. It's a story that'll make you look at your own life and relationships in a whole new way. Seriously, grab your headphones and start from episode one of You Probably Think This Story's About You. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll come out feeling heard and stronger. Listen and follow You Probably Think This Story's About You wherever you listen to podcasts. You know I'm all about aligning in every aspect of life, right? Well, that philosophy extends to hiring, too. When it comes to finding the perfect fit for your business, sometimes the best approach is to stop the endless searching and start focusing on alignment. And that's where Indeed comes in. Indeed is like the matchmaker of the hiring world. With millions of job seekers visiting their platform every month, their powerful matching engine is designed to connect you with candidates who truly align with your needs and values. But here's the thing. Indeed isn't just about finding any old match. They're committed to delivering quality. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed provides the highest caliber of candidates compared to other job sites. And that's the kind of alignment I'm talking about. As a busy mom juggling episodes, clients, retreat planning, family life, I just don't have time to waste on a drawn out hiring process. And that's why I love Indeed, because it streamlines everything from scheduling interviews to screening applicants and messaging potential hires all in one central hub. And the more you use Indeed, the smarter it gets. It learns from your preferences. With over 3.5 million businesses worldwide trusting Indeed to align them with top-notch talent, it's pretty clear that this platform is the real deal. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support my show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
So say we've been going through life up until now, and we have had no idea what that dharma is. Compared to maybe somebody who did, and they're able to look at things in a way where they are following those threads. Is there a way that we can look back on our experience where we've maybe missed that opportunity of really seeing the dharmic threads? Is that a thing? (laughs) It just came out so naturally. Um, Mm -hmm. To see the, the dharma throughout our life to start to assess maybe what we had been missing before. Yes, I I really believe it's never too soon and it's never too late. And some people may begin the journey of questioning much later in life and some people may have been born. I outlined there's a, there are four different types of dharma. The first type is someone who kind of is born knowing their gift. Like you have an amazing voice or you're really good at basketball or like whatever that skill is and you're like I know I have this gift. But that doesn't mean you have it made, you know, think of all the people out there with incredible voices or guitar skills or acting skills, et cetera, who aren't using it in any way. So just because you're born with a gift doesn't mean like, okay, your Dharma's done. Even Adele has had to put so many hours of practice and, you know, technique, et cetera, to now take that gift and bring it out to the world. So that's that first type, knowing that you have a gift. The second type is the breakdown and breakthrough. So those are people who oftentimes, you know, you hear them tell stories of, I was on my knees wondering if God exists. And then something came over me and I found what it is that I was here to do. So oftentimes it's self-help teachers, motivational speakers, inspirational authors, et cetera. You may have gone through a divorce or a health crisis like myself or an a literal car accident could be in so many different things. And that life defining moment is what made you shift. So for example, Eckhart Tolle reached, you know, suicidal ideation until he realized the power of now and then made that shift. So that's the second type. The third is you have had an obstacle that you were able to overcome and now you want to help others overcome it. So an example I write in the book is this woman had really bad social anxiety. She couldn't really read social cues that well. So she started to make these flashcards for herself of like, okay, this means someone's confused. This means they're nervous. This means they're excited because she just naturally wasn't able to read it herself. So she started to share it more and more with her friends. And I'm like, this is so good. You should put it on a blog. So she put it on a blog and then that blog started to grow and grow that eventually she wrote a book on this, that she has courses on it all for people with social anxiety. So this isn't like a on your knees breakdown moment. It was just an obstacle that she had that now she's helping others overcome it as well. Then the fourth type is you helped someone else overcome an obstacle and now you feel passionate about solving it. So for example, let's say a family member of yours has cancer. You know, you become very interested in alternative cancer remedies, holistic healing, health, naturopathy, et cetera. So even though you personally did not have the cancer, someone you care about did. So you're wanting to do whatever you can to learn different solutions for it. And then naturally wanting to share that with other people. So I like, you know, in throughout the book, I always have like, there's so many different ways that anything can happen. Cause I think our society is like glamorizes the story of the person who quit their nine to five job and moved into their van and then like came up with this idea and it's like Airbnb. And it's like that story for some people, but it's not for every single person. Some people it comes from moved a lot as a kid and had to learn how to make friends really quickly, or they never felt comfortable in their pear shaped body and they learned how to dress for it. Or, you know, they love the feeling of Christmas and they want to give that feeling to people all year round. Like it could be so many different ways. And I think sometimes people feel like, 
oh, well, my life is normal. I don't have any like unique stories or cool, cool factors about myself. I must not have a Dharma, but it can also be, what is something you're passionate about solving for other people? You know, maybe it is human trafficking or the environment or something that you're like, I feel so passionate about this thing, even though I haven't gone through it, but maybe it was your Dharmic path to care about it so deeply for other people that you've made it your purpose. Right. And for me, one of the big things that led to what I'm doing now, I mean, I can actually look at a lot of those <laughs> things that you just listed and they all kind of come together, but it took a lot of work because I was multi-passionate. And so I could pick something from each of those types of Dharma that led to some sort of path I could have taken. And because of that, it got me really confused. Like maybe I don't have that one thing, but one question that really started to add clarity for me was, what am I endlessly curious about? What can I always continue learning or how am I always going to continue working on myself? And so maybe it goes down to that, the obstacle I'm overcoming because I'm constantly trying to overcome things and then I share it with other people. And so it's not always this one story. And I know that a lot of us hear it from like motivational speakers or on a podcast, like this is what happened and this led me to this. And sometimes even when I look back at my story, it kind of seems like that. But it's because I spent hours, like hundreds of hours, honing my story in a way to tell it to people where they understand. But when I was first looking at the mess of all of those years, it wasn't so clear. So just because you hear those stories in a concise way from other people doesn't mean that's how it felt when they were going through it, if that makes sense. I think that's so important because oftentimes too, when we tell a story, we can't say all of the things in between. And then, you know, then I was going to do something else, but then I went back to it. Then like, imagine if I started the pod, I would still be talking right now about all of the <laughs> different ideas I had before I did this. Even when my first book was coming out, I was like, okay, once this book comes out, I'm just gonna have to get a job because I still thought I'm not going to be able to make money doing this. So people often think it's like, I had a health problem. Then I wrote a book and like, here I am. And it's like, not at all. Like there were so many webs and spirals and everything. And I think that sometimes that's what scares people of like, well, what if I choose the wrong thing? Like, what if I end up making a choice and it's like, not my Dharma and I end up somewhere totally wrong, but I see it as like a series of like interconnected highways that are all taking you one direction. So you may start here, but no matter where you start, if you continue to listen to your truth, you will end up exactly wherever it is that you were meant to be. And actually all paths lead to Dharma. Right. And I think the biggest mistake that people make sometimes is that analysis paralysis where they don't choose because they have all these ideas. And what I've learned from my journey is to stop being afraid of choosing the wrong thing. Just choose something and be okay if it changes. Because I know back in the day when I was first starting everything, I'm like, yeah, but if it changes, then I'm going to have to backtrack and redo this and redo that. But I swear you will still get farther faster than if you sit there and you don't do anything and you're going to learn things along the way and get more clarity as you take that action. And so I know as you are helping people discover their dharma, there are different stages. So what are the stages of dharma discovery and how can we recognize which one we're on? Mm, yeah. So I realized that it's not like one, one, two, three Dharma. And like you mentioned, Dharma is not a spectator sport. You can't just figure it out from sitting on the sidelines. You got to get in the game. So I think a lot of people, they 
they want it so badly, but they're like, why isn't this my reality? And that's why I broke it down into these five stages, which by the way, are not linear. You can kind of move throughout stages. It's more of a spiral. Like you just continue to deepen and deepen, but it never really ends. That's the thing about your Dharma too. It's not like a one time living my Dharma. That's it. Peace y'all. Like, it's like, you're just going to continue to spiral and spiral and have deeper and deeper awareness on all areas of your life. But it's more of like a mountain range of, you know, you reach that first summit, that first summit may have taken the most strength because you've never been on a mountain before. And you have to gather all these new tools and get strong and believe in yourself and have faith. But then you get to the top of the mountain, you see it's a continuous range and it keeps going and it keeps going and it never ends. So I share this because even when I list these five stages, it's a continuum. We're still looking and not it, the energy shifts and I'll share, but it's no longer looking for your Dharma. You realize it was never actually outside of you. It was inside of you all along. It's more remembering your Dharma, remembering who it is that you are and letting go of everything it is that you're not. So yeah, so the five stages, the first one is self-awareness. Now this is when you're just like, I know something in my life needs to change. I see the trajectory that my life is going and I don't like it. So that's kind of like that moment of like something needs to give. Don't know how it's gonna go, but- I can't continue on like this. So what naturally happens is self-improvement. That's the second stage. How can I become my best self? You start to maybe exercise, get into fitness, nutrition, meditation, um, morning hacks, etc. Motivational speakers, Tony Robbins, like it's all about be your best self, like get better at being you. And we need to go through this. We need to balance our minds and our bodies. For me, it was through Ayurveda. For someone else, it could be through their fitness plan, etc. So we're trying to make ourselves our best selves. And then we finally reach this point that we realize that we're not a mind and we're not a body to improve but rather we are a soul to know. So the focus shifts from how do I improve myself to how do I know myself? And you end up becoming more interested in self-inquiry than self-improvement. So, you know, what are my archetypes? What's my human design? What's my astrology? What are my childhood traumas? What are my ancestral lineage beliefs? What are the, you know, obstacles I, I've overcome, et cetera. And you start to really see yourself as this like immense soul to understand. So that's when people often have like a spiritual awakening, quote unquote. And for some, it's like actually feels like this awakening. And for others, it's more of linear progression. And in this path, which is now stage three, you may feel very lonely. Only because like the world around you is kind of continued and here you are shifting and shifting and shifting that you might feel like the separation with the world outside of you of, Oh my God, everyone's crazy. How am I going to live in this world? And it can really feel like this feeling of like me against the world. Like when I was in my stage three, I would write these poems. I'm like, we live in a box. The computers are a box. The cars are a box. The cubicles are a box. We must get out of the box. And I was just like angry at this box, you know, but that was the expression I needed to go through. And then from there you start to find your practices. So this naturally takes us now into stage four. You find your practices, you find your tools, you find your teachers, you find what works for you. Maybe it's breath work or sound baths or rituals or shamanism or whatever else. And then you no longer feel the separation from the world around you, but you're feeling more integration of, yeah, I know the world is pretty crazy and I'm here on this human body and I can be part of this world. So this is when you go deeper into your spiritual awareness, into understanding yourself on an even deeper level. And you may begin sharing it, maybe with your friends, your family on a small level, maybe you even start on social media. And in the stage of stage four, you are fully aware that you are a soul having a human experience, but you might not right 
know what your purpose is. It may feel like you're living a double life of like, I have all these things I'm really interested in. And then like my job and it's nothing that I'm interested in. So oftentimes people are like, how am I going to integrate this like new emerging me with the decisions I've made in my past? So it can kind of feel like this, like I'm not, I know I have a purpose. I'm not really sure what that looks like. So in this stage four, you continue to deepen and deepen and deepen. And then you start to gather more trust, more courage, more confidence in yourself. And you start to find your own lens of seeing the world. So it's not, it shifts into, well, Abraham Hicks said this, or that person said that. And it's more, what do I think? How do I see the world. And it might not be around spirituality at all. It could be what's my unique form of architecture or web design or whatever else, but it's starting to come from your unique channel. And then as you begin to share that more and more, you gain more confidence and you start to emerge into your Dharma. Now, as we enter into the stage five Dharma embodiment, all areas of your life are going to have to shift relationships, friendships, home, et cetera, because you start to realize that anything that's not in full alignment is going to be holding you back from your Dharma. So you may have to, you know, really kind of do a life overhaul at this point because you shift from seeing it from me to we. And what that really means is all the stages before were about me and it needed to be how I practice self-care. How do I improve myself? How do I have boundaries? How do I love myself? But when you shift into your Dharma, it's really about we. It's how can I be of service to humanity? How can I show up in my fullest expression? Because this is what humanity needs. And then your meditation or your baths or all of these things, it's not about you anymore. It's about, I need to do these practices so I can show up. And that actually fuels you from something so much greater than it just being for you. And it no longer is, I'm doing these practices to like make myself feel better or numb myself or whatever else. It's, I need this because I'm here to show up full time. Now in the stage of Dharma embodiment, Every single person has access to it. You can feel almost an endless amount of energy or creativity towards what it is that you're doing. Like you feel like you're tapped into the cosmos that you just kind of like want to keep going. It's flowing out of you. And this is very natural. It's called Kriya, effortless flow with the universe. So when you're living in alignment with your Dharma, you're not going to feel those same like blocks or whatever stories were preventing you from doing it. You actually just feel like you're tapped into your natural essence and it's flowing through you. And that's how you really know it is related to your Dharma. And everyone has access to this, regardless of what your Dharma is, regardless of your age, regardless of your background, everyone has various ways that they can show up that they're feeling this energy of flow. I know a lot of people have gone through this cycle, which by the way, you were going through it and my life was like flashing through my eyes, like especially my twenties. And I'm glad that you mentioned that it's kind of a wheel as well, because I found that I also feel like I went through part of those stages again. Like there's part of those middle things like that feeling in a box or feeling very separate from the world. I've gone through that a little bit during 2020, <laughs> you know, like where I'm realizing other stuff, I'm having other epiphanies and I'm like, well, what's in alignment here? Like what is really happening around me? And <laughs> just like kind of confusion. And so I think that's really freeing because a lot of us expect that we're going to go find our dharma and then everything's just going to be smooth sailing from there. But you did mention that when you find your dharma, you reach this point of kriya where you're just kind of being propelled by the momentum of of living in alignment. But I know a lot of people have found what really gives them purpose and then maybe they're 3 or 4 years in and they start to kind of lose their drive or their that momentum. Is that a sign that 
they've lost track? Is it a sign that they need to keep growing? Like, what does that normally mean? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I need to get something off my chest. Sometimes I wake up feeling like I hate everything. Like this dark cloud is over my day and I look to the past and the future and everything feels tainted like this is how it's always been. Those type of days used to last months and now they're pretty few and far between and they rarely last more than a few hours, but it can still make me feel like a fraud. I'm sharing this because I know that we all carry around these things that make us feel different or less than, but if we keep them bottled up, the shame spirals and creates more problems than that initial thought. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's difficult finding friends or family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. Therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know. It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of you. BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online, so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. found what really gives them purpose. And then maybe they're three or four years in and they start to kind of lose that momentum. Is that a sign that they've lost track? Is it a sign that they need to keep growing? Like, what does that normally mean? Mm, Yeah, I love that. So your Dharma will have different iterations for some people. And there's three kind of main archetypes. Some people are the air, the Vata. So they're going to go through these iterations quite quickly. They're going to be like, have an idea, channel it, birth it. And kind of ready for the next thing. Whereas some people are like, have this idea, I'm going to create Spanx. And like, that is just what they do. And they like continue with that. Some people actually find their Dharma in roles that they play motherhood, etc. That's parenthood is often a big one, or just like being part of their community that can actually bring their Dharma. And that's the earth archetype. So it's important to see. And I have like quizzes that you can take of which one you are. I know for myself, I'm more of the air. So I'm like, I do something and then I, I birth it out and I'm like, okay, on to the next. And that's actually part of, and it sounds like you have that as well. That's actually part of our Dharma to be ushering it through our chakras. And I break it down into these seven stages, which are related to the chakra system, which is the energy wheel system. So any like, ideation of your dharma will start with the crown you have an idea for something the idea drops through so that's like i'm going to create this cbd chocolate company or i'm going to create this like cool almond butter or something like that now the idea drops through but now you have to intuit it through your third eye is this for me or is it not is it for me 10 years from now or is it not so you start to think about this idea. It doesn't mean every idea that comes to you, you got to go do it right now. Some some of us have a really open crown chakra. We're getting a lot of ideas, but it's like we can't physically do it all. So in this third eye, you start to ideate, think about it. Okay, 
should I do this now? What is my perspective on this going to be? What am I going to bring to the table? Who is it for? You start to really think about it. Then you bring it through the throat. You give it a voice. Maybe you write a business plan or your first draft or you tell a friend about it. You start to bring it into reality through your throat chakra communication and expression. So from that place, you've written maybe your book proposal or your business plan or you know, you've told your friends about it. You're feeling so much excitement that it comes through the heart. The heart is where you feel the passion, like the people who are in chronic pain who are going to eat my CBD chocolates and feel so much better. And you're just like feeling this like immense desire to be of service in this way that naturally it shifts into the solar plexus, the doing of it, like the ass to the grass, get shit done, doing it, the packaging it, the shipping it, the website of it, the this, the that, the that. And I always talk about how the heart needs to be ignited first because oftentimes we're like idea action. And it's like, if we haven't gone through those stages that I just mentioned in between, the heart is like the ignition underneath the stove of like, you got to feel so much love and so much passion for what you're doing. Otherwise you're not going to have enough, enough fuel to get into that solar plexus doing phase. You're going to be like, Oh, this is hard. I'm, I'm out of it. But when you're so passionate about something, it's like, you can keep on moving through that because you're being propelled by something greater. So the solar plexus phase is like the real doing of it. I think a lot of us were like, Oh wait, this is not as glamorous as I thought, <laughs> but it's like, you got to go through that phase of actually now, you know, solar plexus is your digestion, your metabolism is that pitta fire energy. So it's now taking this idea and bringing it out into the world, into a product service, etc. Now, a lot of people get to this phase and they're like, okay, I'm doing the thing. I've had my business for three, four years, but they're feeling not inspired by it anymore because you fundamentally shift so much through moving through this process that you're not the same person as you were when you began this job or business or idea, but you're holding on to something because you're like, oh, well, I have clients, I have customers, I can't let them down. So I got to keep holding on to this smoldering hot plate that is burning me. So a lot of us were like, I worked so hard to get here. I can't let this go, but it's not who you are anymore. So the next stage to go into is the sacral chakra. That is finding the joy, the space to find the creativity. And again, so that's taking that sacred pause of maybe you do need some time off from it. It could be a week, it could be a month. It could be a year. It could be rethinking how you want to be involved with anymore. If you want to be involved anymore, what your gifts are right now, what has shown up for you through this process. And in this finding the joy and the pleasure in it, again, it bursts through now the root chakra. And then that's when it is able to merge into something greater than you. It's the baby. It has its own legs. It can walk. Now, it may walk and have its own life. You may have been called to bring a book to this world and you're like, I'm kind of done with the subject moving on. Or it may re-enter through the chakra system again of now through the crown. You're like, I'm going to bring this rendition on it and it enters through the system again. So some of us will move through one ideation of our Dharma continually through the chakras. So let's say Sarah Blakely created Spanx. So she's like, continuing to just come up with like new products, new services, new ways, new, new avenues. But it's like all around this, like one project Whereas some people are like, I'm going to do a jewelry line. I brought it to life. It, here are the people who love it. Here's someone that wants to continue to manage it. I'm being called to now create something else. That's more of that air energy. So I think it's really important to talk about this. Cause I think a lot of people feel like, okay, once you have it, you got to hold on to it. Cause you're not going to be able to find something like that again, but that process gave you such unique skills, insights, awareness that prepared you for the next iteration of your Dharma. 
Right. And then you can start to figure out maybe what kind of person you are. Like, are you the Sarah Blakely or are you Elon Musk? <laughs> I'm always like blown away by the things that he chooses to go after. I'm like, that seems totally different from that, but it's all innovation or even like, or it could be sort of in line, but not really. Like I'm thinking Mickey Agrawal, where she likes to tackle the things that are a little bit taboo and, and kind of change those, the things that people aren't innovating on. And what I love about the process you just outlined is I can see when I'm reflecting back where I have gone wrong when I felt stuck. For example, I went through those stages when I launched my podcast and it went, I was so fired up by the time I got to that, that heart centered place and it was launching. It was amazing. There were other things after that where maybe I tried to skip steps because I was like, all right, well, I have an idea. Let me just take action. And then I was like, ah, I chose the wrong thing. I didn't take all the steps I took before. And so to realize that it can be really powerful because you might have, it might still be a great idea, but you've either not vocalized it to people, or maybe you haven't, or maybe you have, and you've allowed fear to get in the way. And that's one of the questions that I was going to ask you is that second step is really starting to voice it to people. And now when I'm voicing ideas to people, because of the changes I've made in my life, most of the people in my life are aligned with what I'm doing. Like I could bring an idea to you and you will have one piece of advice or you'd have a, a certain reaction as another fellow entrepreneur compared to when I was first starting this and I was trying to voice it to people, they thought I was crazy because I was surrounded by people who had took the standard route. They worked at grocery stores and a police officer and whatever my parents did. So how do you make sure that you're going through these steps and maybe voicing this but you don't allow other people's opinions or what's holding them back in life uh, to actually start to hold you back from your dreams. Mm, yes, this is so important. One practice I recommend is going on an advice detox. So that is do not get advice on anyone about anything because some of us, especially females, we're like, I have an idea. Let me text three friends and like see what they think. We haven't even thought about the idea ourselves and we're like immediately wanting feedback from other people. And it's this like codependency. And oftentimes you have people in your life who are either not supportive for, you know, intentional or unintentional reasons. So for example, my mom is a great person if you have an idea to find all the flaws of it. <laughs> Like bring it to her if you're looking for a hole in your idea, because she'll tell you all of the ways it's not going to work and it's going to fail. So when I would have all these different like ideas, it was still very much in the infancy of like, I feel like I want to write this book. She's like, you will never write a book. Are you crazy? You're out of your mind. You wishful thinking, starving artist, like all of these things. And I was like, oh shit, is she, is she right? So I had to learn that's not the person for me to come up with these like infant ideas to. It's like bringing your infant to a personal trainer. Like that's not what the medicine they need right now. But maybe once your idea is out there and you've brought it to life and you're looking for, you know, different feedback that you may not have been looking for, that's a good person to bring in. But I feel you on at the beginning, you probably aren't around people who are living their Dharma. Majority of people are not. And I look at living your Dharma as you're on the sand and your Dharma's out in the open waters. But to get to those open waters, you got to move through those waves. And the waves are the fears, the limiting beliefs, the stories from your family, your upbringing, your society, decisions you've made out of alignment with your Dharma. And the more out of alignment with your Dharma, the bigger these waves are going to be. So most people go out into the waves one, two times, they get knocked back to the sand and they're like, well, screw it. 
there must not be open water out there. I tried and I got pushed back and I hit my head on the bottom and it sucks. Or I tried to make a band with my high school team and it fell through. So living your Dharma does not exist. Or, you know, we hear things like this and we're like, oh shit, everyone I know is out on the sand. I don't even know if these open waters exist. Is this just like a fairy tale people are telling me? All I've seen are these waves too. So maybe I should just stay on this land that I know instead of trying to make the voyage out into the unknown. However, when we go through these waves, we become a stronger swimmer and we learn how to maneuver. And even if we're knocked back, we know what to do the next time. And we go back, we get tools. We're like, Hey, here's a boogie board. I'm going to bring into it. Maybe that's your NLP or it's here's a surfboard. Maybe that's your, you know, meditation practice or whatever else that you become better at moving through those waves that finally you make it through and you're out into these open waters and you're like, Oh, this is the flow people are talking about. This is the path of least resistance, the follow your heart. Oh, but I couldn't have gone in here had I not gone through those waves. That makes so much sense. I think we're always looking for that easy way out, but it just doesn't it doesn't exist. What happens is we end up getting better at, at the hard way, I feel like, so that then we are able to learn, we're able to spot the things that, oh, that's an actual red flag. And this is my fear. Cause those are two different things sometimes. And, and I think a lot of times before you've learned to follow this process, we let fear be the red flags when fear is also just a sign that something's unfamiliar and we haven't created like the neural pathways or we haven't jumped in and, and tried something new. So it doesn't feel safe to us, but we've talked about the types of dharma and the stages of dharma, but there's also dharma archetypes. What are those and how do we find out which one we are and how is that helpful? Mm. So in my own path, archetypal work has been so major. Archetypes are basically like personality types, like Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, even human design, astrology. These are all archetypal systems, Ayurveda archetypes. So for me, archetypes, because I was like, I have no idea what my purpose is. Like I couldn't, sometimes you just really can't see it in yourself. It allows you to connect to something that's like greater than you and see them in other people. So when I was writing discover your Dharma, I wanted to come up with nine universal archetypes related to our Dharma. And I came up with these nine. I don't know if you've taken the Dharma archetype quiz yet. Have you done it yet? I have not taken your Dharma archetype quiz, but I have oh. been following your archetypes on Instagram and they're fascinating. Yes. So I'll quickly go through them and it will help you. I mean, as people are listening, they'll probably find themselves in, in various ones. And with archetypes in any archetypal system, you're not just one, you're all of them in varying amounts. So I might be reading a couple and you're like, I feel like I'm this, I feel like I'm that. You are, but one may be stronger at a certain time of your life than another. It may switch according to roles you play. I tend to find you have like top three that stay with you throughout your life, but then the ones after that can like shift a little bit. And then there's probably like two that you're like really not that but that's actually where your biggest work is. So <laughs> I'll share. The first one is the teacher. So the teacher is here to impart knowledge. You know, you can be teaching through podcast, classroom, Instagram, you may be teaching about, you know, 
algebra, or you may be teaching about consciousness. There are so many ways the teacher shows up, but you are someone that goes through life learning an obstacle. And the way that you transmute that obstacle is to teach it to others. So if you were like the kid that to learn, like to study for a test, you had to pretend you were teaching it to someone, you probably have that teacher archetype in you. So, and each of them has like a light and a shadow side, which I'll kind of briefly go into, but the teacher's light side is we all need teachers. We need people to share wisdom with us. But the shadow side is sometimes the teachers can be disconnected from the people they're teaching with of like, here's the information and not connecting. We can all think of that like history professor in like high school who is like, we're all asleep in class, but he's like, let me tell you about the Prussian war. And it's like, you're not (laughs) connecting, you know? Yeah. So it's important for teachers to like adapt to the student because that's what really matters at the end of the day versus like, I want to teach this thing and it's important, you know? So the next one is the nurturer. The nurturer is here to care and connect. They feel alive when they're supported others. They are more like a coach. You know, a coach doesn't tell you what to do. It will ask you a question to bring out that wisdom from you. So they're amazing space holders, healers, nurses, customer service, all sorts of things. Thinking of Oprah as like such a nurturer, like even when she's at the Staples Center, she sits on her chair next to someone and is like, honey, how are you feeling? And is able to go so deep because that's the nurturer's superpower. They're able to really hold space for others. Now, the beauty of that is we need people to care about us and listen to us. But the shadow side of that is sometimes they have a hard time setting boundaries and feeling like I need to be everything for everyone because people need me and it can be hard for them to nurture themselves. And by the way, motherhood really puts you into the nurture archetype. (laughs) Oh, so excited. (laughs) Yes. So the next one is the visionary. The visionary is here to be a bridge for the new paradigm. They are here to inspire people, to help people see the big picture. They're very future oriented. They see like the large bird's eye perspective on things. They're charismatic. They have a way with their words. They rally people around their cause. So oftentimes spiritual teachers, et cetera, will have that visionary archetype to them. So the beauty of that is we need people to inspire us, to make us think bigger. But the shadow side of that is sometimes the visionary can say something to someone that they're not ready for. Like, you know, when you're like, I really want to give you this advice. And that person was like, not ready to hear it. And you can actually like screw with their karma. (laughs) Like (laughs) I'm sure you've been in that same situation. So the visionary really needs to learn, is this serving the person right now? Are they ready for this? Am I invited to share this right now? Instead of just like, I'm going to tell you everything to do with your life. And that's not actually helping necessarily. I so that's find my, myself my, in that one sometimes. Is that yours? <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. I was going through teacher and visionary, but the examples you gave, I'm like, yeah, I think, I think the visionary is pretty aligned. I've been that. Those, those are my top. I feel like a lot of like people who do what we're doing, that's my top two visionary and teacher is the next one. So the next archetype is the entrepreneur. They are here for profit and impact. Both are very important for them. They love sustainability. Sustainability, meaning I want to create something that can scale, that can last, that makes sense. So for example, let's say we were all going to like save the environment. The teacher will like give a lecture, like, okay, here's the CO2 emissions. Here's what you should do with your home at plastic. Like they'll teach you. The nurturer will coach you. You know, what are you really feeling? Like, why don't you want to use glass? What's showing up for you right now? Like, (laughs) The visionary will be like, we are all Gaia. We walk Pachamama's footsteps, connect to divine mother and like inspire you to do it. 
Whereas the entrepreneur will be like, okay, to save the environment, we need to focus on one aspect of the environment. Let's focus on plastic straw consumption. We will create a company with bamboo straws that we will donate 10% of proceeds to, and we will enter the market by a 30% increment every year until 2030, until we see an overall 40% decrease in plastic straw consumption. Here's our profit model. Here's how we can make sure we hire a team, and here's how we're going to make sure it's sustainable. So it's like, it's more of a linear way, a masculine way you could say of seeing things, but it's also very important. You know, Tom's shoes is a really good example of that, of like, it's this huge, maybe billion dollar company, but it gives a pair of shoes for every uh, person who buys a pair of Tom's. So that's something like an entrepreneur would be like, that is something I know is going to make a difference. And again, not all entrepreneurs are like wanting to be an activist. That's another archetype as well that I'll share about. Some entrepreneurs, it could just be like, I want everyone to have a taxi that they could just like call on their phone and let people have the opportunity to be taxi drivers, Uber, you know, it could just be finding a solution for something like that. And that's still a world's problem. And that's really what entrepreneurs are doing. They're sustainable problem solvers. It's funny because I can resonate with that one. I can, but I also see how I've evolved out of it. Like I have a marketing background, so I can think in those terms and I automatically go there, but it's not necessarily my happiest place. Like I feel like it'd probably be the third, but it's funny because I immediately, some of our mutual friends have popped into mind and like, Oh, that's, that's them running that business. Yeah. And like and Natalie Ellis of, that's Boss exactly Mate, who like, I was thinking so of <laughs> entrepreneur, Scott Oldford, if you know him, yes. I mean like Gary Vee, like a lot of these people, like that's what they're good at. They love systems. They love scaling. They love setting up the team hierarchy. Like that is their Dharma. That's what they're here for. And we need that. And the shadow side of that is you become so wrapped up with your work that First of all, it can be hard to have any separation with your work. And second of all, it can be hard for you to trust because you care so much about what you're doing that it's hard for you to find people who can trust. So it could be like you feeling like you have to do everything on your own. So I know, yeah, entrepreneur is like my fourth, fifth one, kind of depending on the stage. I went through a major phase of like bringing my entrepreneur up because I needed to learn how to create a business. But that's not my dharma to like create businesses. That's not my fun spot. But for some people, they're like, I just want to create businesses all day. Yeah, that makes sense. So the next one is the artist. They are here to create beauty. Beauty through everything. Like they're the type of people who will go to their house. Their house is like so beautiful. Their Instagram feed is so beautiful. Like everything they do just has this like beautiful touch to it. So if you are someone who cares deeply about the textures and the colors and the experience and for example, when I was creating my deck, a yogic path, I was like, I want gold foil and this and that. They're like, this is not going to be profitable. I'm like, I don't <laughs> care. I just want it to be beautiful because that's like my artist is just like, you know, an entrepreneur would be like, no, let's make this have as much ROI as possible. But I let my artist lead on that project. So your artist is just, it's for the sake of it. So we need beauty. We need art. And it's always exists in our society. We need a form of escapism for our everyday lives. Like that's important too. However, the shadow side of the artist is that they can become, first of all, very sensitive. Like they can't handle loud noise. They can't handle this. They can't handle that. So they really isolate themselves from the world around them. And that can lead to manic depressive tendencies. Like they can be very in their heads and not in their bodies. So if you think about like Frida Kahlo or Picasso or all of these great artists that like were kind of crazy because <laughs> it was just, you know, and from that place, you can create a lot of art. 
So that's why a lot of the artists want to remain in that place because they're like, who am I without my pain and my misery and suffering? That's where I'm creating from. So it's important for artists to see that they too get to be happy and even boring. Like that's fine too. And it's so important for them to connect back to their bodies. I love that. Yeah. It's funny. I went through a stage when I was first getting into marketing and I was just like, I remember I almost like lost my appreciation for art for a little bit because I was just like, well, what's the point? Like, this isn't going to make money. And again, I can see this time in my life where I was kind of out of balance of things. I was like pushing really hard, but realizing that we have these senses for a reason, like that indulging in that a little bit and, and seeing the beauty around us really affects the way we approach the world. And so having those artists is actually a really valuable thing, whether or not you can see that ROI immediately. Totally. I know when I was really going through my entrepreneur stage as well, I was like, you know, for me, dance is my art form. I love dancing so much, but I wasn't dancing anymore. All my free time was like, let me listen to a new podcast on business and read another book and figure out more things. But it's like, I had to realize what's the point of this? Like the point of this is for me to be my most fulfilled self. And that's for me doing my dance videos, even though there's no ROI or profit, it's not even part of my business, but I just love doing it. So that's, and we all have this artist inside of us. It's not just some, we all have it. And oftentimes as children, we were taught to suppress it because it doesn't, you know, pay the bills. So if that's the one that you feel the least connected to, that's where your work is at. No, I I do feel connected now. Like I I love art, but that's how I kind of know that I was, I believe I was out of balance, but it's funny because that was the time that I was prescribed a ton of Adderall and Mm -hmm. I was on a lot of Adderall. And there's so many things I look back to on that time of my life where I had lost parts of my personality. And it was that like, I had to be listening to a podcast on like two X speed the whole time and like multiple books. And like, if it wasn't somehow I was learning then it wasn't, it was a waste of time. And so in doing that though, I lost the beauty of life. I lost, I lost my ability to like laugh at dumb stuff for a while. Like, um, unless I was the one making the joke and quickly. (laughs) So it's just interesting to reflect back on. Uh, I so feel you. Yeah. Adderall will totally do that for you. It kind of makes you into this like robot machine of like, I remember in college, like the times that a couple of times I took it, it was like, must study. Uh, Don't talk to me. I only (laughs) want to study. And it's like, it, that's what it does. It just makes you very focused in that side of your brain. Whereas the other side of your brain, which is, I believe the left hemisphere is like the beauty and the essence and the creation and, and the feminine. So that's that artist. And, um, as well as another one that I'll talk about. So the next one is the researcher. The researcher is here to understand deeply. They want to understand why things are the way that they are. They are very curious. So they're the type of person person, you send them something on Instagram, they're not going to reshare it. They're going to do all the research. And you know, that research may be in technology and medical system, politics. There's so many ways that it can show up. They're often future oriented researchers and past future ones really care about advanced technology, et cetera, past ones really about history. But regardless, you're going to go into the detail. So we need researchers. We need people who are, you know, studying and for example, um, Charles Darwin's theory of the survival, that took him 30 years on his own to come up with. If he was like on Instagram today, people would be like, you're irrelevant. You haven't posted in two days. 
you're canceled. <laughs> Goodbye. You know? Whereas for 30 years, he was alone in the Galapagos Islands, just like researching. And he wrote like a 700 page dissertation, which is just that, that one um, theory of the survival of the fittest. And like, that's the researcher. They want to understand in such a deep, deep way. And often our society doesn't validate that. It doesn't provide space for it. We're so quick to take action that oftentimes our researcher is like, we don't have enough time for you. Keep going. However, some of our dharmas is very much to be the researchers. So Deepak Chopra, he is researcher, visionary teacher. So he obviously inspires so many people, but the lens that he does with is his research. It's, I'm going to show you with scientific evidence that spirituality is real, that meditation works. I'm going to create this research um, foundation all about checking what's happening in the brain when you are in a theta state, et cetera. That's what he is the most passionate and excited about because he's the researcher archetype, whereas someone else like Tony Robbins, who I'll share, he's a warrior archetype. That's not what he wants to do. He doesn't want to sit in the research. He's very like, do the impossible, take action, climb through any block. And it's a different medicine. It's a different Dharma and we need both. So with the researcher, sometimes it's hard for them to take action. So you, we can all think of that person who's probably like knee deep in like 10,000 books and has like the cure to like every man-made disease, but doesn't feel like they're ready enough to share it. So as a researcher, you do need to learn that you can start taking action. It doesn't mean that once you take action, you have to stop your research, but it's having that, you know, that, that balance, which is unique for every person of when is it enough for me to share? I see myself in a little bit of that. I go in these like rabbit holes where I'll just research for weeks and weeks, but I do think I balance it out pretty well with the action, but there have been times in the past, that's something that I've had to cultivate because in the past, it was like I didn't know enough. And in the research, I'd find all these people that were so much more advanced than I would. And so it would kind of mess with my mindset of what I was capable of. And so I think it's important for those people that are researchers to realize that for the people that you plan to teach or share it with, you only need to be a few steps ahead of them. You don't need to be the all-knowing person of that one topic. The, sometimes that's not even who they relate to. There are people that find me and they like, they want to be coached by me or talk to me about something more so than a therapist because I've gone through the stuff, whereas they've learned about the stuff or whatever. So just finding what gives you that confidence to be able to share can be really important to help get out of that, you know, research rabbit hole that keeps you in one place. Totally. Yes. I feel like for myself too, I would want to hire a coach who's gone through my experience, regardless of if they have a PhD in it or not, just because I know that they've been able to overcome it. But they're also is like a level of respect I have for people who are academics and scholars and putting in so much time and effort to write the books. Like when I wrote Idiot's Guide to Ayurveda, it was a major researcher mode. Like I had to write a tech, a 400 plus page textbook on an ancient health system that most of the information was in Hindi or Sanskrit. So it was like <laughs> super, super tough for me to do. And it really gave me so much respect of like the level of detail that the researchers go into. However, after I did that, did I want to continue doing it again and again? No, but a researcher would, they're like, give me three years on my own to just research things. Like that is my happy place. And that's what they're meant to do. So it's like following what is feeling exciting for you. That's a good point. 
Yeah. So the next one is the entertainer and they are here to make people feel, to make people laugh, cry, think, ponder, feel nostalgic. Like for them, life is a stage and they're always showing up on that stage. So for example, if you are like in a car after a concert, when it's like four hours, you're like waiting in the car to get out of the parking lot, the entertainer in your car will be like, let me tell you some jokes. Let me tell you some stories. Let's do karaoke. Let's do some impersonations. Like that's what makes them light up. They're the person at a party who's like making everyone laugh or telling a riveting story. And that's what the entertainer loves to do. They love to give people a unique experience. And that's actually how they make people see the world in a different way. So, you know, like Sasha Baron Cohen is a really good example of one. He plays these different roles. He's Ali G, he's Borat, he's this, he's that. He's making you laugh, but he's actually making you think. Or Jim Carrey is another great example of he's literally morphing and transforming into these different characters. And that's the way that he is making an impact. So the beauty of the entertainer is we also need that we need to laugh. And again, we've always had jesters or dancers or people who've entertained us. This world can be very mundane if we don't have that. However, as an entertainer, your shadow side to look out for is feeling like you can't be yourself, that you always need to make people laugh around you, or you always need to show up in character. Sometimes entertainers might not really know who they are because they're always like morphing themselves to fit the role of what they think that person needs. And that's why in the entertainer archetype, you see the most addiction. You know, we see that with celebrities, actors, this, that, that sometimes they're numbing themselves because they're like, I don't even know who I am underneath all of this. And then we also see, you know, depressive tendencies when that happens, though, I mean, look at Robin Williams. He was making the world laugh and we had no idea what was going on underneath. Heath Ledger, you know, so lost into his role that almost it like he wasn't sure who he really was outside of it. So it's important for entertainers to also ground back to reality and realize that they're still worthy, even if they're not entertaining. And you said earlier that we might go through these archetypes at different times in our life right? Because I can see that. Like every time you do a new one, I was like, oh, I see a little bit of myself in that one. Entertainer for sure. My husband would probably tell you that's one of my top three. Like when I'm in a group of people, I just tend to tell funny stories or something like that. But the older I get, and actually the more I understand myself, the more maybe it is that finding value in just being. And so I find myself doing that less. And when I'm really looking at that timeline, that was in my 20s when I had all the addictions. So it makes a lot of sense. Totally. And ways that different archetypes can show up, it may be coming out of trauma as well. Like for example, the entertainer may have felt as a child that they were in a, maybe a tumultuous household. So they needed to be the one making everyone laugh. Like for my aunt, she's like such a jokester, but she's like, it's because as a kid, it was so dark in my house that if I wasn't making people laugh, it was so sad. I couldn't even be in there. So now she's almost taken on this persona as the entertainer that her work is around I can just be me and like realizing that people will still love me even if I'm not making people laugh. And and any of these archetypes can come out of shadow aspects as well. The nurturer, maybe you were like the oldest child of multiple kids and you had to be the nurturer and the mom and that's how you received love or the researcher. Maybe you felt like you weren't good enough and you had to get all this research on things to just know it. But the interesting thing is when you do the work around that trauma, if the archetype is still there, it's natural for you. So not everyone who's an entertainer, the shadow may be there. It may have been part of it, but even when they heal it, they're maybe like, I still love to entertain people. It still makes people make me feel so good more than anything else. So it's important to do that work and see what's authentic to you versus what is a response. Oh, that's a really good point. 
I can't wait to take this quiz now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let up. me let me know. So the last two are activist. The activist is here to bring about change. They are here to talk about the hard stuff, the cultural, societal, political, financial, all of the systems. They're very connected to the 3D reality. Like what is happening with our children? What is happening with our environment? What's happening with our animals? What's happening outside? They you know, can't bypass past these things. They're feeling very connected. So for me, growing up activist was like my strongest one. I went to school in DC, studied international human rights law, was like Amnesty International. That was everything for me. And as an activist, you do feel the most passion when you are, you know, fighting this cause and doing something greater than you. That is very much part of your dharma. And you see yourself of, I'm here on this planet. I have a responsibility to make it a, a better place. So we need that. We need people who are doing this work. Imagine if we were all just like, oh, screw it. I'm just going to like paint a painting. Like we need people who are actually out there making the world a better place. However, the shadow side that could come with that is the over-responsibility. It's the feeling of sacrifice. It's the feeling of, I have to be the one to solve every single problem. And it's all the weight is on my shoulders. Then that was my experience of, for me, it came through, you know, growing up with my mom as a refugee and my dad as an immigrant, seeing early in life, the shadows of the world that people don't care. My uncles were political prisoners. My grandma was in a child marriage. So I saw early in life, these dark, dark things. And I'm like, okay, I was born in America. I'm the first person born here. So I need to go save everyone else. And it wasn't coming from, you know, a pure desire. It was more coming from a reactivity and over-responsibility. So it's important for the activist to catch that in themselves if it is present and to be an activist from a place of love, from a place of joy and realizing that your best form of activism is your greatest form of joy. So maybe you love art. You know, how can you contribute your art towards activism or acting? Can you do like a comedy benefit or research? Can you do research on the oceans or, you know, pairing it up with the other archetypes that you have? I think sometimes we think an activist is like volunteer at the soup kitchen or like post petitions on social media. And that's not really all that activism is. And it's also not going to be sustainable that way. 2020 was definitely the year of the activist. It really showed us our relationship with our own inner activist. And it also showed us that activism that's not tied into your dharma is not going to create lasting change. So it's very important. We all have this activist within us, but find the ways that you can make it sustainable. Find an issue that you can really commit to and bring about a solution. I wish I had learned that before 2020 happened. <laughs> and there's, there's so much. It's funny. In activism, for me, one thing I learned, too, is a lot of the times I would start to push really hard in areas, and that would make me realize that that's actually the work I need to do in myself first. For example, there was a time that I was really bothered by the judgment and the division, and I realized I'm feeling judgy and divided at the same time. And so to first start with healing that within myself before I try to go and spread it, because the energy that I'm in while I'm sharing information is often what I'm going to spread at the same time. So if you're doing it from a place of anger and, and uh, chaos, then you might be spreading more anger and chaos. So dial that back a bit. <laughs> 100%. And I think that's why we have this stereotype of the angry activist. And, you know, what it really comes from is as an activist, you care so much and you're really doing it for everyone. So you're like, I am 
giving all my time, all my resources, all my energy, like I'm saving everyone's trees here. It's not just my trees or I'm helping everyone's rights or this or that, but how come I'm the one that has to do all the work and it can get, make you feel very resentful of why don't other people care as much as I do when I'm doing this for them too. So then what happens is you throw in the towel that you're like, well, screw it. If they don't care, then I don't care either. And then you kind of divorce yourself from this part of you that really is important and is part of your dharma. So that's why it is important to find it a way for it to be joyful and sustainable. So you're not just like, I'm sacrificing and doing something I hate for you guys. And the fact that you don't (laughs) care is the reason why I'm doing it. And it actually can create this like codependency towards the solution that activists can experience. I love that. So warriors, the final one, what's that one about? Yeah. So the warrior is here to protect and lead. They want to rally around a cause and they want to use their physical strength, their ability to combat, to move past the obstacles, to do the impossible, to storm forward. So oftentimes you'll see them in the fitness space. You know, a lot of like fitness, bodybuilders, competitors, et cetera. They're like, I want to set this goal and like, we're going to do it and we're a team and we're going to track our progress and we're going to go through this together. So things like CrossFit, Orange Theory Fitness are like so warrior, but they need this. They're very in their bodies, warriors, like opposite of researcher. It's very like storm forward, take action that sometimes you don't have all the information and you're just like plow through. So the warriors want to protect like people in the, in the police. I know you have different family members who are, who are cops. That's a very warrior archetype. You join that because you're like, I want to help people who need security, who need safety. And that's that like warrior energy of you. Who's like, I'm going to be the one that's going to stand up and protect you. And we need that. We've always had that in our society, whether it's through the military or, you know, warriors fighting different battles, et cetera. And also it can show up as just in different careers. Like maybe, for example, AOC, Alexandria Octavia Cortez, who's a politician, she's a warrior. She is like, I will stand up in front of everyone. I will be the voice for the voiceless. I will say the things that other people don't want to say. Come at me. I am stronger. And that's that warrior-like energy in her that is fueling her, that whether you like it or not, she is very empowered in how she is showing up. So that warrior loves the confrontation. They love the battle. That actually really gets them going. It gives them the sense of purpose. Now the shadow side of that can come with you're just fighting for the sake of fighting. You're choosing every single battle. You're in this constant combative state and the energy may not be used wisely. Like is burning an extra 1% of your body fat worth all of your mental energy? Like, is it really? When I was 21, yes. (laughs) Right. But it's like that warrior is like, I I need to fight a battle. So it will be over my body fat, you know? And it's like, (laughs) is that really what's going to like move the needle for you? Or does anyone even really care? So they need to direct that energy towards something that matters, something that's actually going to be making a difference. And they also need to sit with things before taking action. They're like that friend that you're like, someone was mean to me. They're like, yo, where's she at? Where's she at? Let me find her. Like, whereas like, they didn't even hear the story. Like maybe you were the one who did something. So it's important for them to like sit, pause, get more information, choose your battles and then move forward. And it's also really important for them to definitely have a strong physical practice too, to like, sometimes they're just like wanting to fight because they just have all this energy. So it's important for them to like get it out through their body. Um, and that way they're not going to be as like combative in their daily life. So for people that are just starting this journey of really understanding what their Dharma is, maybe they go to your site, they take the quiz. I will link to that in the show notes and they start to understand who they are. But they're in a job right now where, you know, they can't just 
quit and immediately start something new because of their situation. What would you recommend is a good first step for somebody to start to get in touch with this dharma and maybe build confidence in it a little bit before they make any big moves that they're not ready for? Yeah. So I have this framework in the book called the Dharma Blueprint, and it's the series of five different elements. One, your dharma archetypes, like maybe the top three or so that you have. Two, the mediums that you feel the best at writing, speaking, drawing, singing, organizing, whatever the mediums are in which you express. The third is what you're the most excited about. You can write a list of all the things you're excited about. Maybe it is plants or crystals or technology or whatever else. The thing after that is the obstacles that you have overcome. So any type of obstacle as big or small as possible or ones that you've helped others overcome as well. And then the fifth is your superpower. It is your secret sauce. It's what you bring to the table. Maybe the thing that people keep complimenting you about, you know, you have such a great way of making me feel heard or you're so good at coming up with branding ideas, et cetera. Like that is your superpower. And I have different practices to find each of those for you. So I would write out these five categories and then come up with a list of what are different actionable steps that I can do. It could be signing up for a class. It could be doing a teacher training in this thing. It could be getting a job or an internship or a freelance gig, just reading a book about it. But it allows you to see these different categories and how they really intertwine. I think sometimes we feel like I'm this and I'm that and I'm that and I'm that and I don't know it's all going to work out. But like, let's say you're super interested in like healing, like Reiki and hypnosis and breath work and this and that. But you also love business and technology and innovation and all of that. Well, if you do the process, you might find that maybe the next step for you is to work at a startup that has like health technology or to maybe just read a book about advancements in the medical space or to start a blog or whatever the medium is that's showing up for you, whatever it is, you know, I have these different stages. Are you wanting to step into this right now or move into a transition that will like also depend if you're leaping in or just slowly dabbling into something. So all of these practices will help you see that living your Dharma is not necessarily this like quit your job, do something new. It's learning more and more about yourself and especially the things that feel random, that feel like they don't fit in, that you're the most ashamed about. It's integrating those aspects because that's really where your Dharma is at. Well, thank you so much for the wealth of information today. I feel like this was so fun and we have so much to dive into from all of this. So for listeners that are really interested in getting your book and learning more about you and what you do, where's the best place for them to connect with you online? Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure to be here and dive in more. Um, so you can find the book and submit your receipt for different bonuses on my website, which is I am com slash Dharma, D-H-A-R-M-A. And my Instagram is I am Sahara Rose. You'll find the link there and different graphics as well. So let me know how this episode resonated with you. You can also take the quiz at dharmaarchetypequiz.com. It will you your top two archetypes. The rest of that is in the book to do the full assessment. And just know, especially right now, I think moving out of 2020, this is the year that like all of us are really diving in and asking these big questions. So let that excitement, let that curiosity fuel you. Don't step away from the feeling of the bigness of the question and dive into it. And you will be amazed by how far you can come with just knowing some basic things about who you are. 
All the links from this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 173. And your challenge for this week is to discover your dharma. An easy way to do this is to take the Dharma quiz on Sahara's website. So I will leave a link right in the show notes, which are linked in the description of this podcast. And when you get your results, please do share and tag her and Mind Love Melissa on Instagram. I'm really curious to see what you guys are, and I'll share my results as well. The more I uncover about spirituality and just my own growth, the more I understand that this whole journey is really just realizing how powerful I truly am. And that's for each of us. It's uncovering that divinity within ourselves, finding that calm right beneath the ego. In meditation, the whole purpose is to try to escape some of those thoughts that that ego self or the personality self are constantly ruminating in our minds. But instead, just finding that place of peace, finding the oneness where we all connect, what we all share. And I think our dharma is a big part of that. We are infinite souls. Maybe we've led multiple lifetimes, and maybe our dharma stays the same through all of those. So the more clear we can get on who we really are and the power that we have, the easier it is to move forward confidently in our lives because we start to trust that this is what I'm meant to do, not should I do this, this, and this, like most of us are running around, circling back on things, starting something, stopping it. If you knew that you were here just for this, how would you even say no to it? So I would love to see the results of your quiz. So again, tag Mind Love Melissa and I am Sahara Rose. If this episode was fun or helpful, take a screenshot, share it on social media, maybe with your results. I really love connecting with you all in that way. Also, if you want extra episodes, don't forget to check out Mind Love Premium at mindlove.com slash premium. You get extra episodes, meditations every month, plus some other fun bonuses. So check that out. And if you haven't yet signed up for the morning Mind Love, you can do that at mindlove.com. It's right there on the homepage or text morning to 33777. So as always, thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week. 